Hello, my friends. This is Glenda Taylor. Welcome to this little podcast. I want to share with you today something that happened to me a couple of months ago. An elderly man was silent, eating his sandwich alone there in a subway restaurant in central Colorado. He was absorbed with his cell phone. He occasionally glanced at me, also alone, across the aisle. But I was absorbed by my playful interactions with a baby who was reclining in an infant seat, one booth down from the elderly man just across the aisle from the baby's parents and his two boisterous young brothers, a lovely family, the one in the infant seat with fat baby feet crossed comfortably at the ankles, with soft blonde curls swirling the top of his head, had in his hand a blue plastic straw that he was intensely studying, bending the straw this way and that, and then putting it sideways in his mouth to chew on, and then taking it back out again to look at it all over again. When I caught his eye and waved at this perfect little guy and winked at him, he took only seconds to react with a huge, delighted grin, uncrossing his ankles, wiggling his little toes, and holding out his chewed-on straw toward me. He recognized my intent, my, hello, you beautiful, beloved, precious being you, and he responded with an infant's version of namaste. This smiling and winking and waving continued until the two brothers had been coaxed into eating various portions of each other's and their parents' meals, been napkined carefully about the face and hands, and then the whole family left, my chubby baby Buddha friend in tow. I gave him one last wave and blew him a kiss as he passed me by, and he actually chuckled aloud, all innocence and bliss. That's how it all should be, I thought. Just then, the elderly man suddenly leaned forward, holding his cell phone toward me. With an intense and anguished look on his face, he said, There's been another mass shooting in El Paso. Twenty people, maybe more, dead. Oh, no, I said. This can't go on, he said forcefully, addressing me, a perfect stranger, older like him. Perhaps that gave him a reason to address me, or more likely it's just that I was another human being, and right then he needed contact with someone, anyone. This is not us, he cried out. We are better than this. What is happening he said, putting down his cell phone so he could speak with his hands eloquently. We can't even have a civil discussion about anything, he said. His fist clenched, each fist opposing and pushing back against the other fist, perfectly expressing the tragic, violent hostility in our culture at this time. Conservative against progressive, he said. Conservationist against somebody. Ranchers, maybe, around here. Me, too, against you, too. Everybody against somebody else. It has to stop. He shook his head. We are destroying ourselves, he said. I don't know, he said, what the motivation of this shooter was. It could have been about so many things we're all distraught about. There are so many wounds and injustices and mindlessness and 
People either shouting at each other or some just looking the other way, too unconcerned, in denial. I don't know, he said, but I do know we must stop this somehow. I responded in kind, sharing his grief and sense of urgency and despair. Then finally he left, gray head bowed, cell phone again clutched in his hand. Later, all that afternoon, as I drove alone across Colorado, looking at ridge after ridge of snow-capped mountains, at valleys golden with wheat, at picturesque old villages and homogenous, burgeoning towns, I thought about the contrast between the two experiences I'd had in that restaurant, the innocent, happy baby and the anguished, elderly man. I thought about our country, too. I didn't know either what cause had triggered the shooter to deadly violence. Nothing justifies such violence, of course, and I was grieved that it had happened and again in my home state. But the elderly man was right. There is an abundance of issues that can set people off. Everything matters these days, as it should. All lives matter. And concerns for our country, our democracy, our children's safety, our safety are legitimate. Change is needed. And we are so paralyzed by our polarity that positive change can, can just feel impossible sometimes. As I thought about the elderly man's statement, this is not who we are, I felt of two minds about it. Mainly, I agreed, we are and have been better than this. However, our country, our society in general, is not, nor was it ever, ever innocent like my little baby friend that day was innocent. At our country's doorstep can be laid accounts of violations of every kind. Our policy has probably never been totally innocent. As Native Americans, people of color, women who couldn't vote, children in the labor force, victims of religious intolerance, can all testify. Certainly injustice is not found only in our country, of course. Our country may very well be better than most, as we like to believe. There are few innocents, though, anywhere in the world. That's why religions emphasize confessions of our faults. So, I thought about the elderly man's statement, we are better than this. I want us to be. I want to believe that in our hearts, all of us want us to be better than we are now. Better than everything has been lately. One great value, I think, of our our own governmental structure when it works is that injustice can be brought to light and corrected eventually, hopefully, but not easily, and sometimes that doesn't happen at all. I thought about all of that as I was driving that afternoon, troubled as I was. Then I reflected back on another encounter I'd had a few weeks prior to that. This one was in New Mexico when I and my friend Christina, with whom I was traveling, interacted with a campground host at a private campground. On the evening we arrived, he was a sullen, harshly spoken person that we both felt offended by. 
and we had reminded each other later to avoid this campground in the future. And then, astonishingly, the next morning as we were getting ready to leave that campground, as we were checking out, Chris made some deliberately kind remark in praise of his gift shop selections or something like that, just to be kind to him. And then this guy looked at us both for a minute or two, and maybe he remembered how rude he had been the previous night. And then he just began to talk. And so it was that Chris and I just stood at that checkout desk and mostly just listened for the better part of an hour as this total stranger told us why he was, as he put it, sometimes abrupt. He said that as a veteran of Afghanistan and Iraq, he was constantly living with the aftermath of seeing more horrors than he'd ever want anyone else to have to see. He described vividly a mix of feelings he had had, anxiety, anger, patriotism, grief, guilt, depression, suicidal thoughts, and mostly just plain raw nerves. He had volunteered idealistically for service, and then he'd had to see the complexity of war. He had over and over been in situations with his own life in danger. But worst of all, he said, he himself, as an officer, had knowingly sent innocent, naive, unprepared young men out into what he knew would likely be their certain death, because it was the only thing to do. He had learned that right and wrong and innocence and guilt got really muddied in war, and you just did what you had to do to, to survive. And he said he had also looked on the faces of the dead, not only our soldiers, but also people who felt it was the U.S. who were the assassins and other people who didn't have a clue what the whole thing was all about or why anyone would want to kill them, but they were dead. He said, just saying PTSD doesn't begin to explain it. And he said, you know, I'm not just talking about vets now. I'm talking about any people that can get pushed over the edge and there's lots of them, people of all kinds. So many people are so damaged. There's hundreds of ways to do harm to people, you know, he said. And most of those ways are hidden, dressed up in suits and robes and uniforms and righteous attitudes. Back in the States now, he said he had been trying for some years to hold himself together. But he said that coming home, seeing the attitudes of many people here at home, people who were clueless, to the horrors he had experienced and to the complexity of situations all around him now, he had had enormous anger. He said that he had to admit that he often felt the urge to just keep doing what he'd been doing in war because of all his deep feelings. He just, he just wanted to keep killing, 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 he said, his hands working, his eyes blazing. And then he said the thing I was remembering that day, driving across Colorado after seeing the baby and the old elderly man. People say, the veteran said, people say that the violence in our society now isn't us. Yes, it is, he said. All of us are capable 
of the most horrendous things given the right circumstances, given being pushed and pushed into more and more desperate corners. It doesn't excuse the violence, he said. God forbid. But it does explain some of it. He said, whether you're a vet, a cop, a victim of abuse of one kind or another, a person mentally ill, God knows, he said. He himself had been able to secure a slight hold on sanity, not through the VA, benevolent as their intent was, he said, and not by the temptation of the bottle or the drugs, though he had tried that. He had not either, he said, decided to do the thing he called suicide by cop, meaning to do something so violent or violent-looking that the cops would legally shoot you and put you out of your misery. He had instead done something else. He had decided finally to find ways to use his ever-present anxiety-driven edge, his trigger-happy edge, to use his training and education in war for somehow good back here at home. He was now in the local community paramedic group and was a first responder who rushed into danger when needed. He talked to other first responders and to policemen in particular about how to deal with their own trigger points how to de-escalate a situation without allowing their own trigger-happy, fear-driven nerves to get out of hand. He met, too, with every vet that would meet with him, meeting them on common ground to help them get some stability of their own, he said. He wanted to meet with young people and community groups to talk, to educate, ultimately to heal himself. And he admitted, if pushed, he still got in the face of the bastards who didn't get it, he said. I threw one guy out of this campground after he refused to abide by the rules of the place, after he said to me, oh, you're one of those PTSD freaks. I admit I wanted to kill him just then for his arrogant ignorance of what PTSD is, for me, for vets, for first responders of any kind, for any people who have been abused or violated in some way. PTSD is hell but I somehow got that guy out of here without resorting to violence myself, though I could have, but I didn't. And I felt sort of good about that, he said, finally winding down and looking up at us sort of amazingly shy. There was a long pause. Chris and I both had tears in our eyes. I said to him quietly, We aren't all like that guy, you know. I personally want to thank you for your service and for what you're trying to do now. I know I can never fully imagine or appreciate what you've been through or what you go through now. Nor can I completely imagine the pain of anyone else who has suffered indignity and wrong and been put in an impossible place as you were. And then he teared up and said gruffly, Oh, get on out of here. You're making me cry and laughed, giving us a crooked grin and sending us out to find a friend of his that he had contacted who could fix what was wrong with our truck. I thought back on this encounter that day driving through Colorado. That day a shooter had killed all those people in El Paso. 
the same day I had been with that baby, that innocent, naive, blissful baby, and that anguished elderly man. The elderly man had said, We are better than this. The vet had said, more or less, No, we aren't. Better and worse, I thought. Oh, please let us be better. And that day, driving, I knew I didn't have the bandwidth to imagine that I had answers to anything that was going on for anyone on any side of any equation. The shooter or the people who were shot, vets or or anybody else, I still don't. But driving that afternoon on toward southern Colorado where my friends were waiting for me, something happened. In the elevated mountain air 10,000 feet above sea level at a rest stop, a strong wind in my hair and face, I thought, rest, rest a minute here. Rest your mind. Rest from judgments. Rest from conclusions. Rest from attempting even to find answers. And especially, rest from assumptions. The words of one of my favorite songs came to mind, resting in emptiness resting in emptiness. I allowed my mind, empty of all the thoughts and dogma and political and moral enigmas that wanted to churn up in me. I looked for a long time all around me at the mountains, snow-capped and serene, yet also I knew, containing a hidden wilderness full of potential dangers and mysteries always. Rest, I thought, just rest for a little while and put it all on the altar of eternal love and rest yourself. That was easy to say from the perspective of that mountaintop in that seemingly eternal atmosphere with that broad view. And finally, a deep, quiet, undifferentiated compassion did settle on me. So I drove on, quieted, Determined to do what I could in the days ahead, in honor of and on behalf of that vet, that baby, that elderly man, each of them part of the universal one, part of the wholeness that includes the shooter in El Paso and his victims and their families and his family and anyone else who may or may not be shaped by circumstances, each of us suffering somehow separately, and some of us to such an extent they can do, well, anything, ill or good. Let it be good, again I say, let it be good that we choose to do. I often reflect on that day now, Here at home at Earth Springs, I'm back down to sea level almost, dealing with day-to-day challenges of my own no longer on the mountaintop. But I try to remember again and again the calm that settled on me on that mountaintop. And even as I try to keep my commitment to serve in every way I can to bring about change for the better, I also try to keep with me that broad, mountaintop overview that does not allow me to get sucked into any, any 
narrow perspective. So today, I've been thinking that I may get me one of those plastic straws, a blue one like that baby had, even though I know it's best not to use plastic straws for the benefit of the environment, they say. But I imagine myself with a straw just to sit with it, maybe chew on it a while, and examine it with that baby beginner's mind. I imagine myself bending that straw this way and that, and then chewing on it again, just as I continue to chew on these events so important to me and to our world. My prayers and blessings are with our world, with you, today and always. This is Glenda Taylor. Thank you for being with me in this little podcast. Join me again on our website at oneandallwisdom.com. Mm-hmm.